Hello, everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Savela. Wherever you may be in this wide, beautiful, crazy world of ours, you are part of this story circle. In the last program, which was titled Beauty and Love in the Shadow, I started by sharing four ideas with you that staked out or kind of delineated the territory that I wanted to occupy. And I'm still in that same territory. Now, that last program, we explored this space with the aid of some poetry. And today, I want to continue that exploration with the aid of a story a story from from Norse mythology about the trickster Loki. We very much need poetry these days, and we also really need the old stories. We need these old stories as mirrors, as teachers, as tools to open our thinking and to stimulate imagination. Imagination is one of the most important tools that we have right now. And I came across this comment by Ursula Le Guin that I want to share with you about imagination. She says that the exercise of imagination is dangerous to those who profit from the way things are because it has the power to show that the way things are is not permanent, not universal, not necessary. Not permanent, not universal, not necessary. Therefore, transformable. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. We're in the midst of a cultural transformation. And the irony is that it seems like almost everyone, at least almost everyone in the United States, as 2016 comes to a close, has longed for, is longing for, a cultural transformation. We have different ideas about the process, and the result. (laughs) Now, let me reintroduce those four ideas, those four stakes in the ground from the previous program. One was from James Hillman, who wrote that we cannot perceive the loveliness of the world if our senses are numbed by mind-blowing enormities. Hillman, in this statement, describes the situation that we're in, surrounded by the Titanic, the huge, and its effect on us, which is numbing. And he also points out the necessity of staying in touch with the loveliness of the world. The second one, which is central to the program today, is the idea that the primary task of the trickster is to show us the shadow. The third, I took from Pima Chodron. Chodron says, When things fall apart and we're on the verge of we know not what, the test of each of us is to stay on that brink and not concretize. Staying on the brink is the equivalent, I think, to what Jung would have called staying in the tension. Staying in the tension between apparent contradictions waiting for the emergence of something new. 
Jung called that the transcendent function. And then our fourth marker was this notion from Joanna Macy that when we are gripped by despair, it's important to inhabit larger fields of time, to take a wider and broader perspective. And you can turn to cosmologies and mythologies that remind us that there is a pattern or direction that we can't see from our limited perspective in time and space. And that brings us then to the myth that we're going to use to help us do that and to move around in this space today. Now, tricksters, tricksters, one of their primary tasks to show us the shadow. And I do think that Donald Trump is playing a trickster role in the United States right now. He is literally a liar and a thief, an opportunist who delights in causing trouble and ruffling feathers. Now, I'm not saying that Trump is a trickster. He is not the god or the archetypal energy. He's not acting consciously, you know, to do anything other than aggrandize himself. But he, I think, is infused with this energy. And while he has no grand designs and is not conscious of a mythological or archetypal agenda, so to speak, his campaign and election are loosening the bonds of the suppressed and repressed in the United States and around the world. This is very frightening. There is a lot of ugliness being unleashed. But there is also beauty. The shadow is dark because it is not consciously acknowledged or expressed, not because it's bad. That's not the meaning of the metaphor. And the archetypal trickster, as the agent of change, is an essential part of cultural transformation. I tend to think about Norse mythology this time of year because the figure of Odin, who is the leader, leader, ruler, crazy shaman, king of the Norse pantheon is one of the sources of of our contemporary image of Santa Claus. And Norse mythology is very important to Western culture. And when you think about Western myths, you may immediately think of the Greeks, and Greek mythology is foundational. But so are the myths of the Norse. They're just not as well known, nor have they been as well preserved. But Norse mythology gives a particular inflection to the themes of heroism and tragedy that it shares with the Greek. It was Edith Hamilton who first drew my attention to this. She said that the Greek gods can never be heroes because they don't suffer or die, but the Norse gods do. The Norse gods do. They were considered to be superior beings. They weren't humans, but they were mortal. They shared our fate. And Norse mythology begins with Odin learning about the prophesied end of the world. The three worlds, really. (laughs) The worlds of the humans and the worlds of the giants and dwarves and the worlds of the gods. And Odin then tries to figure out how to stop this great and final war called the Ragnarok. How to circumvent this prophecy. And he goes to great lengths 
to do this. In fact, he has only one eye because he sacrificed or traded one of them for a sip from the well of wisdom called Mimar. Now, the trickster Loki is one of this company of gods, but he is also an outsider, as is the case with tricksters, and often their antagonist. He was the son of giants. All of the gods were the sons of giants, an ancient race that existed, obviously, first. And Loki is a character with very ambiguous intentions. He is an adept shape-shifter, often acts in disguise, and he was also very attractive and amorous. He had three children. One was a great serpent, another the daughter Hel, who was the guardian of, yes, Hel, and the wolf Fenri. Odin was informed through magical means that Loki's children would play a decisive role in the Ragnarok, and so one of the ways that he attempted to prevent this war from coming about was by controlling the children. He banished the serpent. He had the daughter Hel in Hel, but he let the wolf Fenrir stay because he had an affection for wolves. One day, however, the gods noticed that Fenrir was growing quite rapidly and was already very large. And they decided that it would be in their best interest to shackle him. But he was already so strong that nothing that they had could bind and hold him. Eventually, the gods visited the dwarves, who were the craftsmen of the gods, and the dwarves made a magic ribbon out of many unusual things, like mountain roots and the noise made by the footfall of a cat. And this ribbon was stronger than any iron chain. When they attempted to bind Fenrir, however, the animal, sensing deception, refused to submit unless one of the gods agreed to place their hand in his mouth. Tyre, who was known for his great courage, was the only one who agreed to this compromise, knowing full well what the consequences would be. As the bonds tightened and Frenray realized that he had been tricked, he clamped his mammoth teeth down on the brave god's flesh, and Tyre lost his hand. This story foreshadows, perhaps, the consequences of the story of Loki and the death of Balder, which is what I want to share with you now. So, take a breath, relax, and make a note of the detail or moment in the story that grabs your attention. This is your window in. Loki and the death of Balder. The great one-eyed Odin was married to a goddess equally wise, Frigga. Frigga was a quiet and mysterious goddess who possessed secrets woven into threads of gold, secrets that she told no one, not even her husband. Between the two of them, they had tremendous foresight and gifts of prophecy. They also had two sons. 
These two sons were twins, but they could not have been more different. Hod was dark and serious, taciturn and blind. Balder was as light as his brother was dark. Very beautiful, wise, pure, sunny disposition. In fact, he shone like the sun and was also known as Balder the Beautiful, the most beloved of all the Norse gods. When the two boys were old enough to assume their places in adult circles, the beautiful Balder was admitted to the council of the gods. He married a beautiful and loyal goddess and lived a happy life for many years. But there came a time when he stopped smiling so broadly and became despondent. The other gods worried about him and wondered what could be causing him grief. Finally, his parents, Odin and Frigga, tenderly implored their son to tell them what was troubling him. And Balder told them that he no longer slept easy at night and was plagued with dark and oppressive dreams. I don't remember them clearly when I awake, he said, but they fill me with a fear that I cannot shake. When Odin and Frigga heard this, they were very uneasy. It seemed impossible that any harm could come to Balder, and yet they were compelled to take measures to avert any danger. Frigga sent her servants in every direction with the strict instructions to prevail upon all living creatures, all plants, metals, stones, in fact, every animate and inanimate being, to take a solemn vow not to harm Balder. All of creation readily took this oath, for there was nothing on earth that did not love this radiant god. So the servants returned to Frigga and told her that all had been duly sworn except the mistletoe. They'd overlooked this little puny plant that was growing on the oak tree at the gate of Valhalla, the hall of slain heroes. And everyone agreed that it was such an inoffensive thing that no harm could be feared from it. So Frigga went back to her spinning in great contentment with total peace of mind, for she felt assured that no harm could come to the child that she loved above all. Balder was protected now from every kind of peril. Odin, in the meantime, had resolved to consult one of the dead Vala, or prophetesses, about how to save his son. He got upon his eight-footed steed Slepner, rode down into the depths of hell, and roused a prophetess using magic spells and the power of the ruins. He didn't tell her who she was, so that she would speak truthfully. And this Vala was spreading a feast for a new arrival in the underworld. Who are you expecting? he asked her. And she replied, Balder, who is destined to be slain by his brother Hod. Odin was horrified by this news, and struggling to keep his composure, he pressed the prophetess for more details, and she told him that someone would be born to avenge Baldur's death, but that this bright god himself would not be brought back 
from the dead. And then she took a closer look at this cloaked figure that she was speaking to and got suspicious about who he might be. So she refused to say anything more. Odin rode home to Frigga with a heavy heart. But when he arrived, he found his wife in a happy state, and she was assuring him that their son was safe. All things under the sun have pledged not to harm him, she said. So do not worry. Balder and all of the other gods felt great relief when they got news of Frigga's many pledges. And they decided to celebrate and hold a picnic on the green plains with fine food and drink and games. Their favorite game involved throwing golden discs at various targets, and this was something that they could do with great skill. But since they were feeling especially light and festive, they tweaked the game a little bit. Having learned that Balder was invincible, they amused themselves by casting all manner of weapons, arrows, darts, stones, whatever, at him. No matter how cleverly they tried, every object glanced aside or fell short. This new game was so fascinating that soon all of the gods gathered around Balder, greeting each new failure to hurt him with shouts of laughter. These bursts of merriment excited the curiosity of Frigga, who sat at home spinning, and she looked up to see an old woman passing by her dwelling. So she hailed this old woman and and asked her to pause and, and tell her what the gods were doing to provoke such great hilarity. The old woman was none other than Loki in disguise. Annoyed by the party and curious to find the cause of such joy, Loki had secretly come to Frigga to investigate. The gods are amusing themselves by throwing stones and other missiles, blunt and sharp, at Balder, who stands smiling and unharmed in their midst, Loki, the old woman, told her. Although he challenges them to touch him, they cannot for some strange reason. Frigga smiled at the old woman. It's quite natural that nothing should harm Balder, she told her, as all things love him and have solemnly sworn not to injure him. This vexed Loki, but he hid it. Are you certain that all things on heaven and earth have taken this pledge? He asked Frigga. Oh, I received the solemn oath of all things, she said proudly. All things except a harmless little parasite, the mistletoe, that grows in the oak on Valhalla. But that's too young and weak to be feared. Loki smiled, bid the goddess adieu, and hobbled off with this information. As soon as he was safely out of sight, however, he resumed his usual form and hurried to Valhalla, where he found the oak and the mistletoe. He cut a piece of the plant and with a little bit of magic made it unnaturally hard. From the wooden stem thus produced, he deftly fashioned a sharp dart, and then he went to the picnic and the games. The gods were still playing, 
hurling missiles at Balder. Only his brother, the blind Hod, stood alone, leaning mournfully against a tree, taking no part in the game. Carelessly, Loki approached the blind god. Why, Hod, he asked, you look down. Is it because such great honor is being awarded to your brother? Oh, no, Hod replied. It's just that, well, I would love to join the new game, but I have no weapon, and of course I am blind. You know that. Let me help you then, said Loki, so you too can pay tribute to your brother. Loki put the mistletoe dart in Hod's hand, and holding up his arm, gave him aim. Hod threw the dart. He waited for the cheers and applause that followed every other dart and arrow. But there was only silence, followed by a shuddering cry of horror. The dart struck Balder the Beautiful, and the shining god fell down dead, pierced by the fatal mistletoe. A great cry went up, and Frigga asked if anyone would go down to the underworld and ask Hel to let Balder return. Hermod, another son of Odin's, rode Slepner down to ask. And Hel was not without sympathy. Well, she said, if everyone and everything truly wants Balder back, if all will weep for him, I'll let him return. Hermod went up with this news, and the gods went everywhere, imploring everyone and everything to weep for Balder, and it was easy to do, as they had all previously taken that solemn oath. All except a giantess that they found living in a mountain cave. When they asked her to weep for Balder, she said, You know, he never rendered me any service when he was alive or now that he's dead. So no. Well, that giantess was Loki in disguise. Well, so the gods gave up. They built Baldur's funeral pyre, piled it high with golden gifts, and when they were done grieving, they captured and punished Loki. Loki's punishment took a really terrible form. They bound him to rocks with the guts of one of his children, and it involved a poisonous serpent and The point is that the portents of the Ragnarok were already clear, but the death of Balder was a kind of turning point. The myth describes a series of events that follow, long winters without a summer, brothers killing each other out of greed, the disappearance of the stars. Everywhere, people armed themselves, we're told, and spied on each other. And finally... Despite all the best attempts and the not-so-great attempts of the gods, all of the bonds were broken. Loki was freed, as was Fenrir, free to fight on the side of the giants, the beings who were even older than the gods. There's a tremendous battle. The Ragnarok is described in the prose Edas, and it's a time when everything is on fire. And the whole process of creation that gave rise to the earth and to the worlds inhabited by Odin and Loki and Balder and the others is reversed. Everything returns and goes back into the abyss. 
But that's not the end of the story. What happens next? Things take shape again, and the earth rises once again from the deep, green with growing things, and Balder returns. There are a lot of things that you can take from this story, and many interesting figures to consider. Who is Hod, for example, the one who's left out of the game? And you know that pairing between Hod and Balder gives us a pairing between the light and the dark that's similar, perhaps, to this notion of the consciousness and the shadow that we're working with. The primary message that I'm taking from this story is the necessity of taking the long view and also playing your role. It's interesting that both Odin and Frigga have foresight, the gift of prophecy, wisdom. They're deep. They can see what's coming, and yet, and yet, Balder is their son, and Odin in particular is the custodian of the world. He has to act to try and save it. They have to try and save their son. But the attempts that they make to control the actions of the trickster, that is the disruption, that is the eruption, the emergence of forces of change that bring about transformation, that can't be stopped. The name Loki, by the way, is connected to the root word for flame, fire. And fire is the element of transformation. In this taking the long view and playing your role, we hear Pima's brink, staying on the brink. You don't really know what's going to happen. Everything's falling apart, but yet you have to keep doing, you know, what, what is right, what seems right. I also hear in this a definition of detachment, of doing what it is that you know is required without expectations of outcome. And I'm reminded that Angelus Arian says that the role of the trickster as teacher, as a teacher in society, is to teach the lesson and meaning of detachment. Taking the long view, detachment, playing the role that you're assigned to play without an expectation of success, these are not things that the, most Americans are very good at. But there are some people here on this continent who have been practicing this for a while. I want to close with a poem that I received in response to the last program. It's called The Prayer of Prayers for the Water Protectors at Standing Rock by Deborah Miranda. The leaves hang on into mid-November. Oak, alder, locust, each one a prayer flag singing aloud. Scarlet, cinnamon, yellow rippling with wind's rough caress. Every acorn, every hickory nut, a tobacco tie hung in the trees. They call out to us, come harvest your prayers. Soon a blanket of prayers will cover the earth, and the trees will stand like prayer poles dressed in feathers, gifts from blue jay, eagle, hummingbird, meadowlark. The planet prays for us, for itself. The planet sings for November's endurance, weaves a nest for our future to curl up inside and learn winter's Kevlar-wrapped stories. This planet is a prayer. 
Each icy night under floodlights and spy drones, she offers up moon and stars, a holiness of cold. You think prayer cannot change this war? Then redefine prayer. It is clothing frozen to the bodies of warriors who do not carry any other weapon against water cannons. It is eyes swollen shut with tear gas, a relative holding a bottle of saline solution. It is the ferocious flower left behind by a rubber bullet blossoming on the face of a woman who is, in the end, made holy of prayer. Her spirit, an impenetrable vessel, carrying prayer out to the edges of camp where armed officers try to hold prayer at bay, as if prayer were a rabid bear or a pack of wolves that must be isolated, beaten, eradicated, because prayer is contagious, prayer is that dangerous, prayer rages like a bonfire, no fire hose can quench. The leaves hang on into mid-November, oak, alder, locust, each one a prayer flag howling hoarse, scarlet, cinnamon, yellow snapping under wind's cracked hands, every acorn, every hickory nut, a tobacco tie swaying in the trees. They cry out to us, come harvest your prayers, come pound them into meal, come mix them with river water, come cook them on this blazing rock. O people, come feast on this prayer so righteous it burns your tongues. Wash it down with a sip from the river, whose songs will always call you beloved. In this view, and in the view of the story that I just told you, time is cyclical. We see evidence of this all around us. Day and night, the seasons, all of life are part of the great round, the mystery. We have a choice whether to be in this cyclical round of time or to stay in what many of us have inherited, this linear march towards a final end. Remember what I said about imagination at the beginning. This is a choice, people, and one of them has far more evidence on its side than the other. If we are all in the great round, all living, growing, changing, dying, and being born again, if we are all part of that mystery, then we are all sacred and everything is holy. That's it for me. Catherine Savela and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me and keep sending poems. If you find something of value in these programs, please join the Myth in the Mojave community on Bandcamp. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy mythmaking and keep the mystery in your life alive. Mm-hmm.